In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful and kindling them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who does enlighten the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Granted by the gift of the same Spirit, we may always truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. St. Joseph, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. <clears throat> well, as I said yesterday, it would be good if we could make this not exactly a retreat, but a means of a, uh, seeking to live our vocation more zealously and uh, more seriously. So from tomorrow night, we will have uh, confessions during benediction. So it would be a good idea if you wish to sort of examine your conscience and uh, see maybe how we could improve in living up to particularly our vocation as fathers or as husbands, and ask God's pardon and ask for his strength to live up to this sublime vocation more generously. Also, as the, as the object of the exercise is meant to be helpful, if anybody's got any questions that they would like to ask, I'll, tomorrow I'll put a box here so that you can write the questions because when you have, you know what it's like when you have public question time, it's always the same people who hog the whole conversation. And also because of the, the nature of the thing, it might be, you might feel more at ease to ask questions, um, secretly, so to speak, about questions which might be embarrassing in, uh, in whatever, whatever way. I mean, most people wouldn't want to publicly announce that their children were totally out of control, for example, and what to do about it. That would be a bit humiliating. But you might like to write it down on a piece of paper. Not that that I'm going to be able to give any magic formula or answers to things, but sometimes it's just to get a point of view. It can be be useful and, and, and helpful. So, anyway, up to you. And obviously, if the, if the questions are answered or if I can weave the answers into the, into the conference as well and good. If not, well, we'll go through them on Friday night. All right. Now, yesterday we were on the book of Genesis. And I hope you forgive me if I linger a bit on the book of Genesis because it seems to me that uh, the book of Genesis really sums up everything almost that you have to know about life. It's a curious thing that the book of Genesis should be so ridiculed uh, when, or even sort of not taken seriously when it's so clearly full of wisdom and practical wisdom at that and a true reflection of life as we know it and as we see it. 
So, of course, last night we left the drama with the uh, Adam and Eve noticing that they were naked and considered the profound significance of the nakedness of Adam and Eve, that nakedness which was a symbol of a perfect and complete lack of self-consciousness. That's to say that their attention and their consideration was directed all outside of themselves. First and foremost to Almighty God, and then to each other in the image and the likeness of God. And sin, and sin in its essence, being as Satan, who is a liar, but a very plausible liar, suggested to our first parents that if they disobeyed God, that they would become like gods, having the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, it's perfectly true that that's what happened, but it happened in a way which was not at all as they anticipated. That's the nature of temptation. The human race then became its own God was completely then focused on itself. And even if you, later on, God himself, ironically or rather sarcastically, actually says this in the book of Genesis 3.22. God said, behold, Adam is become as one of us knowing good and evil. Now, therefore, lest perhaps he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, God sent him out of the paradise of pleasure to till the earth from which he was taken. That's it, you see. Then we become focused on ourselves. The center of our life is not God as it was was previously, but self. It's rather like the temptation... That the devil suggested to Eve. He said, you'll be like gods, but God wants us to be like God. God wants us to be like himself. That's what he made us to be. He made us in his image and likeness. But the evil of sin is to want to be like God on our own terms and not on God's terms. And so they saw that they were naked. They became completely self-conscious. Now, it's a curious thing that they should have wanted to, to hide themselves. I believe that that hiding of themselves is the expression of the alienation which sin produces. Alienation between people, even those who are the most intimately united, husbands and wives, and also the alienation which, uh, which separates mankind from God, as we will see later. In some of the commentaries, you'll see the more, the more generally accept, acceptation of this question of them noticing they were naked is that they perceived the consequences of their sin in the rebellion of their lower nature their sensual nature against their intellectual nature. Whereas previously there was an integrity in their beings, 
so that their intellect and their will had complete dominion over their concupiscible, their sort of their attraction to evil and their and their fleeing from ill. Controlled, if you like, in simple terms, their attraction to sensual pleasure and and controlled their reaction of anger against what they perceive to be evil. But if that's the case, and it certainly is the case, that in itself is ironic. And it's, a, it's a, another demonstration of the madness and the insanity of sin. Because we assume, therefore, that them seeing each other naked, their passions were, according to this theory, what their passions were inflamed and revolted against their reason. So they suddenly found sensual pleasure so attractive that it disturbed their mind. Well, actually, in reality, sin, original sin, actually dulled the pleasure of sensuality and dulled the pleasure of sex. So that after original sin, the pleasure of sex was diminished. Isn't that an interesting notion? And if you you think I'm making this up, it's St. Thomas Aquinas who says it. It's a very interesting thing. I think it's fascinating because it tells you a lot about sin in itself. Well, where can I find the page now? Let me lose it. Here's an interesting thing. St. Thomas Aquinas says that Adam, in the state of innocence, possessed the virtue of temperance. To the objection that temperance is connected with the moderation of unbridled desire, as it is now, which did not exist in Adam, but was excluded by the preternatural gift of immunity from concupiscence, St. Thomas replies that temperance as such can exist and function by keeping all passions within due bounds from the very first. Now, this is interesting. We must now point out that the virtue of temperance excludes two opposite vices, which are those of intemperance and insensibility. Intemperance consists in excess of natural pleasures, while insensibility is defined as contempt or rejection of natural pleasures as though these were evil. Isn't this fascinating? It's not the kind of thing that we usually hear at sermons, is it? <laughs> there is a tendency among authors to expatiate at great length on the evils of intemperance, which is what we're usually hearing about, but there is seldom any mention or even the possibility of the existence of the vice of insensibility. Yet St. Thomas definitely regards it as one. His treatment of it is worthy of notice. In the Summa Theologica, Secundi Secundi, he writes, everything which is contrary to the natural order is vicious. Vicious means you know, of, of being in the nature of vice. But nature has attacked, attached pleasure to operations which are necessary for human life. Hence, the natural order requires that a man shall use these pleasures insofar as it is necessary to do so, either for health or for the conservation of the individual, or that of the species. If therefore anyone should so avoid such pleasures as to forgo those things which are necessary for the conservation of nature, he would commit sin. 
Of course, St. Thomas adds, it's sometimes praiseworthy to abstain from such pleasures for a particular end. Thus, to abstain from pleasures of food, drink, or sex for the sake of bodily health, etc., or whatever, or for a spiritual reason, is always legitimate. But it's interesting, isn't it, that, that this, the sensitivity or the sensibility of Adam was such that he actually enjoyed a greater pleasure of sense than we can enjoy now. We must add that though unbridled lust and a moderate concupiscence would not have been present in the state of innocence, of course, St. Thomas holds that there would have been even more pleasure in the sex act than there is at present. He makes this statement when dealing with the objection that in sexual union man becomes like to the brute beasts because of the vehemence of the pleasure attached to the act. Here is his reply. There would not have been less pleasure, as some people have asserted. Rather, the sense pleasure would have been all the greater, inasmuch as man's nature was then purer and his body capable of more exquisite sensations. Thus, St. Thomas excludes from the state of innocence anything approximating to the sin of insensibility. Now, why do I bring this up? I bring it up because it's necessary for us to realize that, that, the, that, the, that, the, that the marital union is a good thing. And not only is it a good thing, but sin has ruined it. It also is fascinating when we are tempted to sins of, uh, of, uh, of sensuality to remember that that, that often our craving for the thing is stronger than the actual enjoyment which comes from it. That's another punishment that we have for our, for, for our sins, isn't it? Which Adam would not have experienced, but we do. Isn't it so often the case that the desire for sensual pleasure inevitably results in disappointment and in emptiness? There's greater excitement in the anticipation of the thing than there is in the act itself. I'm not speaking, I'm speaking about sinful acts now. I'm not speaking about the, about the marital union which is sanctified by God and which is another order of thing because God has elevated it to another order. I'm speaking about the ordinary brute passions as sins. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Very, very interesting. But anyway, as I say, that's not to me, the, anyway, the, the essence of it, the essence of it is this concentration on self, this alienation, which is marvelously demonstrated by the, the fig leaf, if you like. It doesn't actually say it's a fig leaf in the Bible, but the, uh, the very fact that Adam and Eve felt that they should hide themselves from each other. Because the first thing that they notice is this self-consciousness this inward looking to self, then created a division, an alienation between them, and then an alienation from God. Because the the next verse tells us, And when they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in paradise at the afternoon air, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the face of the Lord amidst the trees of paradise. And God called Adam and said to him, Where art thou? And he said, 
I heard thy voice in paradise, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So already now, no, immediately on the, on the commission of the sin, the, the human race finds itself divided, separated from its maker. And God said to him, who told thee that thou wast naked? Even that question is riveting, isn't it? Who told thee that thou wast naked? How do you know that you're naked? How do you realize you're naked? It's you, something has happened. And what's happened? But that thou hast eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat. And Adam, see how Adam is really going now from the top of creation progressively lower and lower and lower and lower because what does he do? He does about the most ignoble thing that you can imagine. Adam said, the woman whom thou gavest to me to be my companion Gave me off the tree, and I did eat. Wow. Not exactly the most manly thing in the world, is it? And also notice that he blames God and his wife. He blames both of them. He blames the woman, but he blames God for giving him the woman as a companion anyway. The woman whom you gave me as a companion gave me to eat, and I did eat. It's horrific. Full of consequence, all of this. And the Lord said to the woman, why hast thou done this? And she answered, the serpent deceived me and I did eat. It's a bit more noble actually than Adam's answer. She doesn't actually blame anybody else. So then God curses the serpent, but for the sake of time, we'll ignore that and we'll go on to. To the woman also, he said, I will multiply thy sorrows and thy conceptions. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thou shalt be under thy husband's power, and he shall have dominion over thee. Right? So that's the consequence of sin for women. I will multiply thy sorrows and thy conceptions. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, Thou shalt be under thy husband's power, and he shall have dominion over thee. We'll discuss this later on. And to Adam, which concerns us, because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, this is a lesson too, because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat, Cursed is the earth in thy work. With labor and toil shalt thou eat, therefore, thereof, sorry, all of the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herbs of the earth. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, until thou return to the earth out of which thou wast taken. For dust thou art, and into dust thou shalt return. Well, There you are. There we have the program of our punishment. But also because God is a loving father, because he doesn't stop being a loving father, even when he becomes a, a just judge, in this punishment is also our redemption. In fulfilling the terms of the punishment, it ceases to be a punishment. 
It ceases to be a punishment and it becomes a means of redemption if we accept it as God wills. And it's really like all punishments. If they're accepted, they become a means of redemption. When the murderer is sentenced to be hanged, he's got two alternatives. He can either accept the punishment in his heart or he can revolt against it. If he accepts the punishment in his heart, it becomes a means of redemption. He does the greatest thing that he can possibly do to rectify the ill which he has committed. He accepts death for himself. And so that's how it must be for us. So what is the consequence now, the practical, everyday consequence of these words? Well, what's happened then happens all the time. Adam and Eve covered themselves. Now, we do that all the time, and because I'm now starting to feel chilly, I'm actually going to do likewise. Excuse me. This covering of oneself, of course, is not the covering of the body especially for married couples anyway, if it shouldn't be the covering of the body for married couples. It's a covering of something else. And here is the, uh, here I think is a typical, typical description of modern man covering himself from his wife with a fig leaf. Something awful happens to many men after they get married. As a sensitive and aware married woman I interviewed described the married men in her neighborhood, they're so passive. They must hate their wives because these guys are hardly even people. A typical weekend day for them seems to mean trimming hedges, mowing the lawns, and puttering with their cars. Furthermore, many married men seem to become progressively more childlike, dependent and helpless in their interaction with their wives. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Not, not us, of course, but other people that we notice. <laughs> Wives discussing their husbands with me in private often make comments like, he acts like a baby. He's become so dependent on me, it scares me. He won't do anything for himself. He acts as if he's totally helpless. And he's always hanging around the house and getting in the way. I wish he had some more friends. Many of these men ask their wives for permission whenever they want to do things on their own. When they describe, when they describe the positive aspects of their marriage, get this, the positive aspects of their marriage relationship, it often sums, sounds something like, oh, she lets me do a lot of things on my own and doesn't stay on my back, like a lot of other wives that I know. In essence... The wife has been given the role of permission giver or mother figure by the male. Progressively, the married man begins to distrust his own judgment and taste. 
he starts to believe that he is an unesthetic clod who's only good in the business or working world and that his taste does not measure up to hers. Like mother, she knows best. As one real estate agent expressed it to me, I never sell to the husband. I always sell to the wife. If he likes the house, it doesn't mean a thing. But if she likes it, I've got a sale. Because he is caught in a relationship, and this is where the fig leaf comes in, because he is caught in a relationship that may not be intrinsically satisfying to him, although he is not always in conscious touch with his anger, resentment, and desire for autonomy, his negative feelings continually emerge indirectly in the form of passive aggression. Get that? Passive aggression, not active aggression, because we're speaking about good husbands. And we're not speaking about husbands who actually beat their wives or anything like that. We're speaking about husbands who are good husbands, so their aggression is passive. Passive aggression. He's in the relationship, but he is not of it. The passive expression of his frustration and discontent assumes many forms which for the purpose, I say, many fig leaves. Barriers. One, extreme moodiness and occasional outbursts of rage that are participated by relatively minor things, such as a misplaced sock, laundry done late, a button that hasn't been sewn on, a toy left on the floor, or a late meal. Two, Grabbing for the mail or a drink and then hiding behind the newspaper or in front of the television set almost immediately on coming home from work. Three, increasing expression of his wanting to be left alone when he's at home. Four, Increasing complaints of fatigue and physical ailments such as back aches, stomach aches, headaches, etc. Five, a drifting of attention when his wife is speaking to him, causing him to ask her frequently to repeat herself, an indication that his mind is wandering and that he is not concentrating. Six, having to be reminded constantly about the same things which he continually seems to forget, such as hanging up his clothes, taking out the rubbish, etc. Seven, a general resistance to talking about his day when he comes home in the evening. Eight, avoidance of sexual intimacy manifested indirectly by either coming to bed after she's fallen asleep or falling asleep before she's come to bed. Other manifestations include bringing home work from the office and doing it late into the night, or staying up late to read or watch television. Nine, avoidance of eye contact with his wife. Ten, 
an increasing tendency to confine his social life with his wife to activities such as going out to eat or to a movie which do not require active interaction between them. 11. Generalized feelings of boredom. The boredom often disguises an impulse or a desire to do things or to be places other than where he is. However, since he is unable to own up to his real needs, he does nothing and sits home bored instead. Unable to assert himself openly or to own up to his discomfort, his hidden resentment emerges in a myriad of underground ways. The message he is transmitting indirectly to his wife is, I'm afraid to do what I really want to do or express how I really feel. So I'll avoid feeling guilty by staying at home. I'll avoid feeling guilty by staying at home. But you aren't going to get any satisfaction from my presence either. (laughs) Isn't that it? So often that happens. You can see that picture. Obviously, the fact that you're laughing, you can see the picture. It's so true. This disunion, this disharmony, the fig leaf, the alienation, which of course can become progressively worse if something is not done to correct it. That's how marriages end up becoming embittered and, well, die. Even if they don't end up in in divorce, they become dead. And it's also because we're not... Not only just not being as husbands should, we're not even being as men should. This, the, the, the person that's described has lost, really, has lost his masculinity. That's why he's, that's why his wife is sick of him too, because he's become Mr. Nobody, really. Because he's no longer truly himself. And he's no longer in command of himself. He's lost all sense of what it is to be what a man should be, and certainly he's lost all sense of what it means to be the head of a family. So I think we've got to, we've got to be constantly, we'll come back to this point later. This is just for purposes of illustration. We come back, there are, there's a kind of formula. We've got three A's, which we've got to have in regard to ourselves and regard to our wives and children. Three A's for us is that we've got to be authentic. We've got to be real. We've got to, a, a real man is somebody who's honest, straightforward with himself and with others. And you can't be honest and straightforward with other people if you're not honest and straightforward with with yourself. You can't be honest and straightforward with your wife even or your children if you're not authentic yourself. If you're not a real person, then how can you, anybody relate to you for what you are? And you've got to, in order to be authentic, you've got to assert yourself. And this doesn't mean to say assertion in a, in a, in a, in a, in an unpleasant, violent manner. But you must have a personality, which is clearly expressed. And especially if you are meant to be the leader and the head of the family. If you will not assert 
your authority, and this does not mean being authoritarian. This means living up to the office and the responsibility of your position because it's an office which we've got to live up to, then again, we've failed. And we've got to be autonomous. We've got to be autonomous, not in the, not in the sense of being independent. We can't be independent from our, our wives and family. That would, be a, that would be a crime. But we've got to be autonomous in the, in, in, in the sense that we are responsible and we assume responsibility for our decisions when we make them if we've got enough assertion to actually make them in the first place. We've got to be all that this man here isn't and all that his wife is complaining about that he isn't. Authentic, assertive in the good sense and autonomous also in the sense that, as God says, because thou hast listened to thy wife, it's not the wife who is in command. It's contrary to her function and her office. And it's an abuse even to drive her into that position, as a lot of men do. A lot of women are the head of the family because by default, because their husbands are so weak and characterless that they've got no no alternative. And that in itself is a crime. That should not be allowed to happen. And if, it's a, if you let it happen, then it's your fault. There's no point in saying, men saying afterwards they've got overbearing, nagging wives. Well, whose fault's that? Does a wife really want to be overbearing and nagging? I doubt it. <laughs> maybe she's got, or maybe she sees, she imagines that she's got no alternative. So we've got to do that to ourselves. In order to be all that we should be, then we've got to practice the other three A's. We've got to be attentive and affectionate and approving towards our wife and our children. We've got to give them our attention. There's nothing more frustrating. Coming back for a family, the husband comes back from work, and he won't give anybody any attention. He won't give his wife any attention. He won't give his children any attention. And that's understandable because if he's got a hard job, either on his nerves or on his body, it's understandable. The manner in which we live and the manner in which mankind has lived since the Industrial Revolution is unnatural. The fact that husbands are separated from their families even to go to work is unnatural. It never used to be like that thus. That people either worked on the land together with their children or they worked from home in the blacksmith's forge or in the baker's shop behind the house or whatever. Men were at home. That's where they should be. And they were obviously working for their home. Now you've got this, this separation, which again we'll speak about later if we've got time, which has created havoc in, the, in family life. So it's understandable on one level that people aren't got the energy when they come home after a hard day's work. But what are they working for? Why are they working? They're working surely for their families. And therefore, if their families are the main thing in their life, they've got to give them their attention. And they've got to give them their attention to demonstrate their affection. And they must also give approval. Not endless approval, because we've got to, we've got to chastise and punish and so on. 
But even when we punish, we must also likewise give approval. In other words, we have got to be in the image and the likeness of our Heavenly Father as regards our family. We stand really in the place of God. And this is a, this is a manner in which oh, countless, countless men in modern times have failed. And it's, it's one of the greatest tragedies, maybe it's the greatest tragedy of the human race, that fathers are not what they should be. Now, I came across in a book what I thought was a very enlightening. So if you forgive me, I'll read it extenso because I think it's really very accurate. About the relationship of modern men and their fathers. Now, I think this is fundamental because if we are possibly ourselves going to be good fathers, and if we expect to have good sons, and we won't have good sons, we've got to be ourselves, before we even start, good sons vis-a-vis our own fathers. And this is something which is a fundamental, natural consequence. Never mind the supernatural. We consider the supernatural aspects later. I find this chapter in a book, which is a book which is entirely secular, a book which is by no means Catholic, a book which I could not possibly recommend to you because it's full of the most dreadful things, but it's also, like many things, it's got a few gems in it. And it's a very contemporary book. You can buy it in any bookshop. Don't buy it. But <laughs> and it's by somebody in Melbourne here, a, a, a psychologist or a sociologist, what it's all called Steve Bidoff. It's a book which has had tremendous popularity, and it's called Manhood. And I think this chapter is very, very relevant, and it's a great lesson. If we don't have, if you've not had any experience, if it doesn't correspond with our experience, then make sure that we don't make it the experience of anybody else. It's interesting because, as I say, it's by somebody who's not, I don't believe, even a Christian, and has got all sorts of weird ideas about many things. But listen to this, and I hope you forgive me if I read it. Oh dear, it's already 20 to 8. When I, this man's a, a psychologist, a sort of a, whatever he is, or what these people are. He, uh, anyway, so he, he deals with people's problems, all right, psychological problems all the time. When I meet with men in gatherings around the world, I conduct a survey. The results are always the same. 30% of men report that they don't even speak to their father. Their relationship is non-existent. Around another 30% have a somewhat prickly or difficult relationships. They do sometimes spend time with their father, but it's a painful and an awkward time. Around another 30% fare somewhat better. They visit their father or they phone him regularly. They show up for family get-togethers. They go through the motions of being a good son yet discuss nothing deeper than lawnmowers. Less than 10% of men are friends with their father. Can this really be true? I suspect it is. Less than 10% of men are friends with their father and see the relationship as deep and sustaining. 
only about one man in ten says, my father is a great help. He's an emotional anchor in my life. How tragic that we all don't have this kind of relationship. And the sense of ease and quiet pride that comes from knowing my father loves me and is proud of me. How different the world would be if we all, men and women, could count on this. And where are you with older men in general? This is an important question. In fact, your happiness as a man is hugely impacted by the answer. Manhood, it turns out, isn't an age or a stage, it's a connection. It's an interesting observation. It's a connection, both to the world of women and men. Half of this equation isn't enough. Unless you can connect to the inherited masculinity of generations of older men, you're like a phone without a socket. Thousands of years of masculine culture is missing for you. Think about this connection with your father for a moment. Your masculinity, unconsciously, and whether you like it or not, is based on his. Most men realize with alarm (laughs) that their father's mannerisms, stances, and even words are deeply a part of them and likely to emerge at any time. If you are at war with him in your head, you are at war with masculinity itself. And so this often means you are hopelessly divided against yourself. Take this or leave it. It's important at some stage in your life to have, if you possibly can organize it, a profound conversation or a series of conversations with your father. Only by doing this can you get an understanding of his life, his reasons, his failures, and his successes. Unless you take the step, you will always be building your own manhood on shifting sands, on guesswork, and childhood impressions, which were never the whole story. Other older men and women may supplement what you didn't get from your father, and their role is vital. But his primary place in your life will still be there. Even... If he was an alcoholic, a wife beater, a child abuser, even if you never met him, your biological father still matters. Unless you come to terms with him, he will haunt you from the inside where he symbolically lives forever. One of the ways your father will hang around is by coloring your attitude to all older men. Perhaps you don't trust older men because you couldn't trust your father. Perhaps you're rebellious to authority in general because your father was unloving and harsh. Perhaps you tried to impress older men because you couldn't please your father. Perhaps you have been feeling superior to older men that you could do without them or that you can put it over them. The fact is, until you reach a place where you can feel love and respect for your father and also receive and accept the respect of older men, you will remain a boy. I have spoken to men whose fathers died or abandoned their mothers and were never seen again. I've also talked to many men whose fathers committed suicide. This leads to deeply buried hurt and confusion, since the message a little child always takes is, what did I do to make him leave? What's wrong with me? 
Men can suppress this pain by hard work and denial, but will still be prone to outbursts of deep distress, often masked by anger. I've encouraged such men to make the journey into their father's past, which often means making a real-life journey, interstate or overseas. It's led men I've known to visit prisoner of war camps in Europe, talking to contemporaries of their father, looking up long-lost relatives, making a deep personal journey to heal the emptiness and the understanding, the whole picture, and so let themselves and their fathers off the hook. Sometimes dreams bring new information, or long-lost memories will surface. As a young man in my 30s, I was very focused on the deficiencies of my father, the things he didn't do or offer me, especially during my adolescence. Naturally, my psychology of training fed into this, parent blaming being a major industry at the time. One evening, I... That's a bit sentimental, I'll miss that. (laughs) Coming to terms with your father... Having a rounded view of him is especially important if you are a father yourself, and more so if you are in any kind of leadership role. You will never have authority until you can respect authority, which means in this leaderless world, finding some authority worthy of respect. For those of us whose fathers are still alive, the situation is easier somewhat. Many men will identify with this story of a man phoning his father long distance. The younger man is making an attempt to bridge the the gap that has grown up between them. Father and son have had little contact in recent years, and the son has been doing some thinking. When the father answers the phone, the son begins to try to tell him. Hi, Dad, it's me. Uh, oh, uh, uh, oh, hi, son, I'll go and get your mother. <clears throat> no, don't get Mum, it's you I want to talk to. Then there's a pause. Uh, why? Do you need some money? <laughs> no, I don't need money. And the younger man starts on his somewhat rehearsed but still vulnerable speech. I've just been remembering a lot about you, Dad, and the things that you did for me, working all these years in a job that you hated to put me through college and supporting us. My life's going well now, and it's because of what you did to get me started. I I just thought about it, and I realized I'd never really said thanks. Silence on the other end of the phone. The son continues, I, I want to tell you um, thanks and, and that I love you. There's a long pause before the father answers. Have you been drinking? <laughs> Every father, however much he puts on a critical or an indifferent exterior, this is an interesting point, will spend his life waiting at some deep level to know that his son loves and respects him. Make sure that you absorb this point. He will spend his life waiting. 
This is the huge power you hold in your hands just by virtue of being a son. Everyone these days accepts that the parent has the power to crush a child's self-esteem. Few realize that a child in time holds the same power in reverse. Parents wait, however defensively, for their children to pass judgment. That's how life is. A friend of mine had a father who was so impossible that he walked out of the house if ever anyone tried to talk to him about matters of importance. This old man developed cancer and was dying now, with tubes in and out of him. My friend went into the hospital, closed the door of his father's room and said, I've got you now. (laughs) He began to tell him how angry he was and also after a time, after a time that he appreciated about him. At one stage in my life, I drove my father to a remote beach and refused to take him home until we talked. He came through very well. So there is a responsibility here, and not just a duty. Getting this right will challenge you to the core. The words, I love you, are cheap and easily said, which is part of the reason that we hesitate to speak them. It's not the words that matter, but the message is important, however it's conveyed whether it's through a tone of respect, a liking for each other's company, a hug or a touch, you will find your own way. Eventually, though, to remove any doubt, you have to tell your father and your mother what you feel and all that you feel or else just go on fudging it. A lot is at stake. If you're a man and you do not confront this dragon, then your father will die hurting and a part of you will die as well. Many men go to their graves, convinced that they have been an inadequate human being. They do this because of the lack of respect that has developed with those they love, not the least of those being their own sons, their connection with eternal masculine life. Finding an understanding of their father's position is a necessary work for all sons if they are ever to graduate as men. Respect, which is love mixed with admiration, is the food of the male soul. Sons have to discover respect for their fathers, which is not the same as pretending it. They also, however, need to receive respect from their fathers. In a superb book on men's development called Healing the Masculine Soul, Golden Doll Bay Minister tells a complimentary story to the phone call at the start of this chapter. A young man in his late 20s writes to his father. The young man is a successful professional, but plagued with insecurities and hurt by the difficult times that he had with his father through his teens. In his letter, he is direct and to the point. He asks his father straight out whether he loves him. A letter comes back in reply, courteous and formal in tone. I love all my kids. You should know that. Can you spot the deliberate 
error. The old man still hasn't said it. The young man feels let down. Though it takes a while to work out why, he eventually realizes he's been shortchanged. And this is what always happened throughout his childhood. I love all my kids. A clear statement is deferred. It's left to implication. Direct praise is avoided. Direct contact is never made. Encouraged by Dolby, the son persists. He writes again. He's frightened to do so, but he takes a chance. Here are the exact words of the father's reply. I have to thank you for pushing me with your question. I guess I hadn't really thought that deeply about it. But when I did think about it, I realized that I do love you, Peter, and I need to say that for myself, probably as much as you may need to hear it. Nothing is more powerful in the psychology of childhood than the need for love and approval. Unless a child receives clear and tangible demonstrations of these, then he or she will wither like a flower without water. It's as basic as that. I've watched tiny children in hovels in Calcutta dancing for their family and friends who respond with warm applause and hugs. I've also watched Australian children bring home their report cards from their expensive private school. Young faces, eager for praise, only to receive cool, critical appraisals from their performance-orientated, uptight parents. What is the lack of closeness? What is the result of lack of closeness with the father? If love is what we hunger for and it is not forthcoming, then a warp in our life sets in. When our natural need for love is fulfilled, it settles into the background and we can get on with our life. Unfulfilled, the need for approval drives us like an obsession. Many of the people who dominate the media, business tycoons, politicians, obsessive sports achievers, are mostly driven by this unfulfilled hunger. See, Dad, see what I can do. But of course, it never works. But son, can't you do better? There are many possible causes for a generational rift between fathers and sons. While it's always difficult for men of different generations to reconcile with one another, especially in times of rapid social change, at heart the issue is really the same. Do you love me, even though I differ from what you expect? I am not the one you dreamed of. Expectations and hopes are part of the psyche of every parent. It's equally important to let go of these should they not work out. Many terrible wounds arise at this time from fathers who wanted a son and got a daughter, wanted an athlete 
and got an artist. Wanted a musician and got a laborer. Wanted an Olympic gold and got cerebral palsy. The problem is not the different outcome, but the refusal to grieve and then move on. To love what you have got instead of what you wanted. Isn't there great wisdom in all that? Excuse me for reading all that at such great length, because I thought it expressed better than I could have sort of expressed it myself. Because I think it's got a profound lesson, really. How we are with our fathers, are we the sons which we could have been and should have been? And if our fathers have not been to us the fathers that they could have been and should have been, it must be a dire warning for us not to repeat the same cycle. It's a tragedy, and it's a consequence of sin. This alienation between even those who should be the closest and the nearest and the dearest to each other. Sorry, that was a bit just a reading lecture tonight. Perhaps next tomorrow we'll say something more. Let's move on. <laughs> In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of mercy. Hail, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry, for banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this veil of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, and eyes of mercy towards us. And after this, our exile, shun to us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.